I would invite you to turn with me once again to Revelation chapter 16. And as we begin, I want you to think about this statement for just a moment. Sin is utterly insane. Just think about the insanity of sin. Now, on one hand, there is a certain logic that attaches to sin. I I understand that. It promises a a degree of pleasure, and sin can be pleasurable for a time. It promises a degree of autonomy. It feeds the illusion that you can be the captain of your own ship, that you can rule your own life, you can live life on your own terms, that you can be a law unto yourself. And as we heard in Ivan's testimony a moment ago, uh, that illusion cannot last because it is only an illusion. So when we come to the book of Revelation, we see graphically depicted the utter defeat of sin, of Satan, and of those who pledge their allegiance to him. We see the dreadful consequences of those uh, of going our own way. And of rejecting God. It it leaves people who are self-directed and who are God-defying utterly without excuse. It tells us, this is where you're headed. Turn back while there is yet time. Revelation ought to strike terror into the heart of everyone who is without faith in Jesus Christ. But as we'll see, as we read in the text, and as we'll see this morning... Natural man, people without Christ continue to harden their hearts. They continue to refuse to bow their knees. They, like Pharaoh, they stubbornly persist in their unbelief to their own destruction. Now, we've seen before that the book of Revelation is punctuated by seven cycles we call progressive parallelism, cycles of God's judgment. They're not separate cycles of judgment. They are a restatement of God's judgment on this earth with increasing intensity. And there are these series of three seals, the set, or three, uh, series of threes, the three, excuse me, series of sevens, the, the, the seven trumpets, the seven seals, and now the seven bowls of God's wrath. And then with the seven seals coming first, it tells us that one quarter of the earth was destroyed. When we looked at the seven trumpets, one third, a larger proportion of the earth is destroyed. When we come to the seven plagues here in Revelation chapter 16, we see that the entire earth is destroyed. The final outpouring of the wrath of God on this earth. Now, I said earlier, chapter 15 introduces the seven plagues. Seven angels are given these seven plagues to pour out upon the earth. But that chapter's preparatory. We see the actual outpouring take place here in chapter 16. But in chapter 15, verse 1, John writes, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for which, uh, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Simon Kistemaker said this last cycle ends with complete and total judgment. It's the final outpouring of God's wrath on this earth. There are five points that I want to walk you through as we look at this message this morning. First of all, the severity of the wrath of God is revealed in these judgments. Secondly, the insanity of the sin of men, as I referred to in my introduction. 
Thirdly, the justice of the wrath of God. Fourth, the vile opposition arrayed at Armageddon. And then finally, the final plague, it is done. So, let's consider together the severity of God's wrath as we look particularly at these first five plagues, these first five bowls being poured out. We see this destruction is complete. It is all consuming. There's no limit. The first plague speaks of harmful and painful sores. I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. Now, as we go through these plagues, you'll, you'll notice if you're thinking, uh, remember that so much of Revelation is understood in light of the Old Testament. And so you'll recognize these plagues that, were, that fell upon Egypt are are reflected with much greater intensity here in chapter 16. In Exodus, it tells us that terrible boils broke out in open sores on the Egyptians, but not on the Israelites. Only the Egyptians were subject to these plagues. And here in verse 2, we see that these, these boils fell upon those who had received the mark of the beast, those whose allegiance was not to the Lord, the one true God, but to his enemy. And these, these boils, these, 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 uh, that word can mean an abscess or ulcer. There's no way to, uh, to uh, mitigate that pain. There's no way to relieve that pain. That word harmful boils, the sores speak of harmful. And that word is actually generally translated evil. And the word for painful oftentimes is trans- translated uh, wicked. And so, the way John describes these painful sores has profoundly moral connotations. They were the result of their sin and rebellion against God. Now, when I was a kid, I don't know, eight or nine, something like that, I had an abscess on the side of my leg. And it swole up, and it got red, and it came to a head, and this was gross, but, you know, when we put heat on it and squeezed it, pus came out. And some of you going, thank you, Pastor Jamie, that's a little too much information. But you know what? That's what we're talking about here in the Word of God, and it's not just one on the side of your leg, it's the entire body is covered with these painful sores. And it is agonizing beyond our imagination. And we dare not try to hide behind or hide from this description of this great, this great plague which God has brought upon, or which God will bring upon this world before the return of our Savior. This is a temporal outpouring of his wrath, and it's only the first plague. It gets progressively worse. Secondly, we find that the seas are turned to blood. In verse 3, the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. This is reminiscent of the very first plague in Egypt where the river Nile turned to blood. In the second trumpet, we saw that one-third of the sea turns to blood, but here it's the entire sea, and everything in the sea dies. Every living thing, source of food and sustenance, dies. And the third plague is poured out where the rivers and the springs of water also turn to blood. Now, Fresh water is essential to life. You cannot live without water for more than a few days. 
And it's all it's all fouled. It's all turned to like the blood of a corpse, it says. It becomes undrinkable. Now, I've said before that the the description of God's wrath is uh, in, in Revelation, uh, whether it's actually what we're seeing on the page, whether it's literal, if it's not literal, it's worse. It's never less. It's always worse. Uh, just like when it says the eyes of the Lord run to and fro around the world, it doesn't mean that God has eyes. It means he sees all things, but he sees more than a billion eyes could see. So it's understating something that we can't fully comprehend. And so whether it's actual blood that the rivers turn to or something far worse, I don't know, but whatever it is, it's going to be terrible to behold and terrible to experience. The emphasis here is the all-encompassing judgment of God on this creation and on the wicked of this earth who will be utterly consumed. Not one who is outside of Christ will be spared. Now, at this point, those who are languishing under the wrath of God might cry out, God, this is too much. Your your judgments are too severe. This punishment is more than we deserve. And the angel anticipates that objection and gives the testimony that God is utterly just in the outpouring of his wrath. Look at verse 5. I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. Now, consider the content of his statement. He addresses God as absolutely holy. He is the holy one. In chapter 4, we find the four living creatures falling before the throne of God day and night. They never cease to cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The Lord who was and who is and who is to come. He is eternal. He's utterly separated from sin. That's what holy means. He's perfect in all of his ways. He's eternal. He's the creator of everything, but nobody created God. God didn't create himself. He always has been. He is the self-existent one. He was and he is. And elsewhere we'll see that he is to come as well. And this eternal God, the creator of all things, is bringing the old creation, which has been under the curse, to an end. And he's going to restore with a new creation. But he himself, our God, is uncreated. He always was. He always is and always will be. And the angel here declares the justice of God in verse 5. Just are you, for you brought these judgments. He recognizes that these judgments described here are to be attributed to God and none other. And he says God is utterly just in carrying them out. Now, you recall in chapter 6... John sees uh, the, 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 I believe it's the fifth seal, where the martyrs are under the throne of God crying, how long, O Lord, until you vindicate our blood? Until justice is established once again for those who put us to death. And the Lord said, wait a little while longer till the full number is filled up. Well, the angel is declaring they're guilty. They have Uh, they fully deserve this judgment from God. And the reason is because they have shed the blood of the martyrs. 
He says, you've given them blood to drink, and that's what they deserve because they are the blood of your saints is on their hands. It's as if the, the angel is saying, the punishment fits the crime. They shed the blood of God's people, so the only thing left for them to drink is blood itself. No one can bring a charge that God is in any way unjust. Now, this is not the full extent of God's judgment on them. This is the beginning. It goes on. But there's this echo that takes place from the altar in verse 7. I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. His verdict is true, meaning those who are declared guilty really are guilty. Now, we know that in a human justice system, no matter how careful we might try to be, and sometimes they're not as careful as they ought to be, but the very best human uh, systems of judgment or of justice sometimes make mistakes. Guilty people go free, and innocent people get convicted because the best of men are men at best. But God's ways are just and true. He is never wrong. He will not punish a single innocent person. He will not fail to bring justice and judgment on those who are under his guilt. His declaration is true. But also, the punishment, the sentence, is just. It is right. It is reasonable. They deserve that which they are suffering. And the only way we can really understand that is if we recognize that God is holy and He is infinite, He's God, and that we're not. A sin against another person pales in significance to our sin against God. And that's why, uh, because our sin against God is cosmically infinite, His justice requires eternal punishment. So as horrifying as the wrath of God is described here in chapter 16, it is, it's true, it's just, it's right, and it's holy. And there's a warning here to anyone who's outside of Jesus Christ. Friend, hear me. If you are not a Christian, if you are not truly trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, these words are written as a warning to you. This judgment is what we all deserve, every single one of us here. But many of us have put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. We've repented of our sins. And that judgment has fallen on our Savior Jesus, but it only falls on him for those who are trusting in him. And if you're trusting in yourself or anything other than Christ, this is your destiny unless you turn. There's a warning here. Now, now, come to the Lord Jesus who will receive all who will bow the knee to him. We have a Savior who says, come, come. But the day will come when those, that invitation will end and men will gnash their teeth under the judgment of God. Let's look at this, this third point, the insanity of the sin of men. As we read in verse 8, it says, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched with a fierce heat And they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent or give him glory. So the sun scorches men and women as with fire. Now I've heard that there's nothing more painful than to be burned. There's no other injury more painful than that. I don't know if that's really true or not. I've got a pretty nifty scar on the back of my hand when I was burned when I was a baby. But I don't remember because I was only a year old. But burns are horrible. And it says here that the sun 
will become so intense that it will scorch men and women. And they will, with searing heat, be burned. And as terrible as the boils and the abscesses from the first bowl of judgment will be, this will be even worse. Now you'd think, at this point, they'd say, okay, enough already. God, you're right, you're God and I'm not, and, 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 and whatever it takes, I, I, I need deliverance. But what we see is that they refuse. And that's the utter insanity of sin. Verse 9 tells us, they were scorched by the fire and heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. God can deliver them for these plagues, but rather than cry out to him, they curse his name, and they refuse to repent or to give God the glory that he deserves. They curse God. They blamed him for punishing them as if he were somehow wrong, as if his judgments were not just and true. Their utter hatred for God is revealed. He is the only one at this point who could possibly help them. And they spit in his face. They curse his name. They refuse to repent and give him the glory that is due his name. In Romans chapter 8 verse 7, we read that the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. And we see that demonstrated uh, Clearly here, vividly, that they are hostile to God, cursing his name and refusing to submit to him. Their minds are in such bondage to sin and unbelief and to going their own way, they refuse to repent. I want you to think with me for a moment how insane a commitment to sin really is. It doesn't make sense. Yes, it promises a degree of pleasure for a time, but that pleasure dries up as we heard our brother share a few moments ago. We were created in the image of God. God made us with unique abilities, and one facet that we have received as image bearers of God is that we, were, we are made as creative beings. We have an impulse to create. God's impulse to create is why he created this earth, why he created you and me. And we exercise that impulse to create in things like music and art and uh, building projects and even food. Last night, our ladies had a charcuterie party where they created really, really neat charcuterie boards and, and, and amazing designs out of food. That's an expression of the image of God in being creative. That creative impulse leads to all manner of creations and creativity. It, and and any time we create, it begins in our imagination, right? You think it, you dream about it, and then you find a way to do it. That's a good thing. That reflects the image of God in man, that creative impulse. But the sin of man has distorted that image of God. It's distorted that creative impulse. So man imagines that he can somehow create his own reality. He can create a world in which he can do whatever is right in his own eyes, in which he can become a law unto himself, in which he doesn't have to answer to the God who created him, to which he is accountable actually to no man, that he can choose his own course of life, he can even choose what gender he wants to be, and that he can be utterly free of any kind of consequences for the sinful decisions 
he has chosen to make. In fact, he has imagined for himself, and he's trying to create a world in which the only sin is to suggest that anything is actually sin. Let me say it again. He imagines that the only thing that's really sin is to declare God's word, which tells us what is actually sin. That intolerance is the only evil he is willing to acknowledge. But this imaginary world is a figment of the distorted imagination of sinful men. This natural man imagines that he can live any way he chooses, that he can defy the consequences, that he can somehow be the Lord of his own harvest. The Lord said, don't be deceived. God's not mocked. What a man sows, he will reap. If you sow to the, to the flesh, from the flesh, you will reap destruction or corruption. And the natural man says, no, I, I, can, I can sow to the flesh all I want, and I can expect a crop failure. No, you can't. You can't. It's, it's been said the definition of insanity, particularly in the midst of failure, is to do the same thing over and over and expect somehow a different outcome. And as men experience this, the temporal consequences of sin, you'd think they would turn, but they don't. There are health consequences to sin. As people abuse their bodies, as we heard with drugs and alcohol and any number of other uh, sinful engagements, and their bodies suffer and pay the price for it. There are emotional consequences as people's lives are racked with guilt and with shame. There are relational consequences as relationships are violated and are broken. And the, the fervent pursuit of the sinful mind is not to turn away from sin, but to some, find some way to mitigate the consequences of his sin. To somehow avoid those consequences so he can continue to live as he pleases and not pay the dreadful price of the harvest of corruption. Sin brings with it all manner of, menace, of miseries. And the natural man uh, 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 believes he can somehow create this buffer zone, this bubble that he can live in and protect himself from those temporal miseries so he can continue to live as he pleases. And there's more ways that men do this than I can describe when the only logical, reasonable response to those miseries is turn away from the sin that brought those miseries upon your life. But on that day, there will be no way to mitigate the consequences of sin. There will be no buffer and no relief from the agony and the misery brought upon men by the wrath of God. Even in the face of inescapable defeat, they still curse God, refuse to surrender, and refuse to repent. That is the definition of insanity. They stubbornly cling to their sinful hatred of God, the only one who can help them. They ignore the clear and unmistakable warnings of where their rebellion is going to lead. Now let me say to you this morning, if you are not trusting in the Lord Jesus as your Savior, this is where you are headed. And there's no other way apart from Christ to be delivered from it. And it is insanity to think you can somehow escape 
the just and holy and righteous judgment of God. Unless that is laid upon the Lord Jesus in your place as you repent of sin and you put your trust and your hope in Him. There are many here who would count it a great privilege to speak with you in depth about what that looks like and how that happens and how Jesus can take broken lives and put them back together in marvelous ways and preserve us from this dreadful end. But as bad as these first four plagues are, it continues to get worse. The fifth plague in verse 10 and 11, we read of darkness falling on the entire world. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. And its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. And it's interesting, this bowl is poured out upon the throne of the beast, who is the Antichrist that we've read of already. This, uh, this world influence that persecutes the church in its many different manifestations. But the entire kingdom is plunged into darkness. That's reminiscent of the ninth plague in Egypt. You remember when darkness fell in Egypt, but only Egypt. In Goshen, where the Israelites lived, they still had light. And it tells us for three days, the people in Egypt could not move. They were in total pitch black darkness. But here in this passage, not only are they in darkness, all those boils and sores and everything else is still part of their experience. They have received no relief whatsoever. It just gets worse and worse and worse. And the pain is so terrible that it says they gnawed their tongues in anguish. Can you imagine something that hurts? The pain is so great, you inflict more pain on another part of your body to try to dull your awareness of the pain in the rest of your body. How horrible that must be. And yet, verse 11 tells us they cursed God in heaven for their pain and their sores, and they did not repent of their sinful deeds. There was still time to repent. The invitation is still there. The window of opportunity is still open, and yet, in their hardness of hearts, they reject the only source of hope and rescue that could be found. Sinful man is arrogant. He's obstinate. He's defiant, even in the face of agonizing defeat. And this, my friends, is utter insanity. It makes no sense whatsoever. But as we go forward, fourthly, I want to look at the vile opposition that, ar- that is arrayed at Armageddon, verse 12 and following. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. This, the, the river Euphrates is dried up. Now, I want to be careful here. It could be the actual river Euphrates, or it could be, uh, it could be symbolic language. Certainly, over and over, it speaks of Babylon. Well, Babylon had long since ceased to exist as a nation. And yet, there was this influence that was Babylonian, that was oppressive to the people of God. Just like Babylon destroyed the people of God, Judah, and took them off into captivity for a time, that Babylon continues to oppress the church. It's not a physical geographical location we can find on the map. And it may be that the the, the river Euphrates here is not to be taken as literal. Maybe it is. It doesn't really matter. That's not the point. The point is that in this sixth 
bowl of God's wrath, the way is being prepared for the kings of the east to assemble together for this one great final battle. But we see this, 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 this horrible scene. It tells us in verse 13, I saw coming up out of the mouth of the dragon and the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. Now, the dragon, of course, is Satan. The beast is the Antichrist. The false prophet is false religions that oppress true religion. And this unholy trinity, this counterfeit trinity, as it were, is bringing forth these demonic spirits who then will perform great signs and deceive the world, leading them to their destruction at the Battle of Armageddon. Convincing the world through these miraculous signs, follow us, we have the truth. Now, let me just say this, this is so important. Jesus told us in the Gospels, there will be false prophets who will perform miracles and will deceive even the elect if it were possible. Miraculous signs, and I'm not talking about, you know, uh, uh, hand, hand uh, uh, deception uh, kind of things. I'm talking about real actual miracles will be done by the enemy. And there are those who make claims of miraculous signs as, as a proof of God's blessing when the message behind that is heretical and unbiblical. It's the word of God we must test, use to test every spirit, every claim. Whether there's a miracle involved or not is utterly irrelevant. It should cause us to look more carefully and more closely. And so, we read here, these demonic spirits deceive the world. They deceive the, the kings of the world, and they assemble at this place called Armageddon. Now, interestingly, we've all heard about the Battle of Armageddon, right? Do you know how many times the word Armageddon appears in the Bible? Ten? Five? How about one? Just here. This one verse. One time. And yet, it gets blown up in, you know, Armageddon, and people talk about it all the time. It appears one time in the entire Bible. Now, it's the last great battle, and it is cataclysmic, and it is huge. But let's make the main things the main things. So, what does it mean? Well, there was a, a plain about two days' walk northeast of Jerusalem called the plain of Megiddo. And on that plain, there were a number of very significant battles fought in the Old Testament because of a very large, vast plain. And so, Armageddon is the mount of Megiddo. The problem is, there's no mountain there. It's this big, wide plain, but there's not a mountain which tells us that we're dealing with something symbolic and we can't plot a spot on the map and say, here's where it's going to be. This is the spot of the great final battle. Well, we don't know that. And trying to pinpoint those kind of details misses the point because the point is run to Christ. The point is put our faith and our hope and trust in him, turn away from going our own way and, and, and believe the gospel because those who do not will be crushed at that great and terrible battle. We'll read more about this great final battle in subsequent chapters 17 through 19. But in the middle of this declaration of this, uh, this preparation, this lead up to this battle, we find this, this word from the Lord. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he might not go about naked 
and be seen exposed. What is that telling us? It tells Jesus is saying, my coming, my return will be unpredictable. Don't waste your time trying to set dates and times. And throughout church history, there have been those uh, in virtually every generation that says, if you just look at the signs of the time, you have to conclude Jesus will come back in our generation. That's nothing new. That's been going on for 20 centuries. And yet our Lord has not yet returned. And so when those who say, it has to be, how could it possibly not be in this generation? That argument's been used for 20 centuries. Jesus says, I'm coming like a thief. You will not know until it happens. So don't waste your time with dates and times. You're missing the point. The point is, stay awake, be alert, keep clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. How terrible will it be for those who are naked and exposed. What are we talking about here? Well, we've seen the saints in other uh, passages uh, in Revelation already. They're clothed in white robes. It's a righteousness, not their own. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, we are to be overcomers. We must be clothed in his righteousness alone. We must walk with him. We must trust in him and remain faithful to him so that whenever he comes, we will not be caught off guard. And unprepared. But then finally, we see this last great plague in verse 17 and follows. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. This is the end. This last voice proclaiming, it's done. And we see the very same proclamation in chapter 21. Again, remember the progressive parallelism, right? But in chapter 21, it's not, it is done, destruction has fallen. It is done, the new heaven and the new earth have been established. But it's a proclamation of finality. Here in chapter 17, it's the announcement of the last great battle. Now, it's going to be described, as I said, in greater detail in subsequent chapters. And we will see the destruction of God, the wrath of God raining down on his enemies. But as I've said before, much of what we've read about so far is temporal. But there's a finality. Not only will this present world be put away and, and, and experience his wrath, there's an eternal wrath beyond this present age that is unspeakably frightening. We dare not ignore that reality. Throughout church history, there have been Numerous confrontations between the beast and the church, between the Antichrist and the church. There has been persecution and, 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 and times of great suffering, and it's still going on today. There were more Christian martyrs in the 20th century, some have said, than all of the centuries combined before that. But there will be a last great day, a final battle, a final showdown, and the appearance is on that day. God's people will, be overcome, will overcome and even, I dare say, be unscathed from the battle. Jesus will win the victory and we will stand with him. And so this angel pours out this bowl of God's wrath accompanied by flashes of lightning and peals of thunder and by this great earthquake. Now, let me ask you, was anybody awake at 3 o'clock this morning or did you wake up at 3 o'clock this morning? I heard thunder last night like I haven't heard in a very, very long time. It was 
astounding. And I'm laying there hearing this window-rattling thunder, and I'm thinking, God must think it's more important for us to think about His greatness and His power than it is for us to get sleep, because He's keeping me awake right now. And it didn't last too long, but it was amazing. But you know what? That kind of thunder will be nothing in comparison. It will pale in significance. The most horrific earthquakes that have ever fallen upon this world are local. This will be global. And it tells us the world will cease to exist in its present form. The destruction will be unparalleled and it will be complete. The great city Babylon will be divided into three parts. And that, that, again, that's not something we take literally and we say, okay, now this is District A, B, and C of Babylon. No, not at all. It's that it will, it will be destroyed. The great cities of the world, Washington, D.C., New York, L.A., London, Paris, Rome, Moscow, Beijing, and wherever else, the great cities of the world will be destroyed. And it says God remembered Babylon the Great. It's not that he forgot about Babylon. It's that he turns his active attention to Babylon to deal with their sin. Remember, the martyr said, how long, O Lord? And he says, the time will come. Well, now it's come. He remembers Babylon and he pours out his wrath upon them. He no longer bears with or tolerates the wickedness of Babylon, the violence of Babylon. It tells us Babylon will drain the cup of the fury of the wrath of God. It will be complete. Now again, this is the temporal wrath of God. There's an eternal wrath in hell, but the temporal wrath is going to be poured out and it will be complete. And the entire earth, verse 20 tells us, will be destroyed. Every island fled away. No mountains were to be found. People of the earth will be pelted with these massive 100-pound hailstones. Now, we don't need to sit back and think, well, I wonder if that represents artillery shells. Here's the reason I would say no. Because who's shooting the artillery shells? That's the kings of the earth. Who are they shooting them at? They're not going to be shooting them at their own people. Not on purpose. But it's those who have given their allegiance to the kings of the earth and to the beast and to the, to the antichrist. Those are the ones who will be pelted with these massive, massive hailstones coming from God himself. God can certainly use human means. But I think in this case... It is the Lord himself who will send these without using a human intermediary. He will bring about such a severe plague. People will be destroyed. Don't miss that point with all the curiosities. Of, I wonder if I can connect these dots to those dots. That's irrelevant. And here's the thing that's so shocking. Even so, in light of that, these hailstones falling from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. They continued to harden their hearts. They continued to cling to their spiritual blindness and their imagined autonomy. As the final sickle of God's judgment sweeps across the earth and his wrath is complete, and he makes way for that new heaven and that new earth. And I can't wait to get to chapter 21. Verse 1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Well, that's what we see happening here. The first earth passing away. 
this vision of these seven bowls. It takes us to the very end of the age, this, this great day of God's judgment where the wicked still continue to hate God, to curse God, to blaspheme his name. There's no sorrow, there's no shame, there's no cries for mercy, and there's certainly no repenting. It reminds me of the, the, the philosopher from the 1800s named Friedrich Nietzsche. Some of you have heard of Nietzsche. Nietzsche, uh, Nietzsche was... Uh, from what I understand, the kind of the author of the God is Dead movement. And he put forth this image of this strong man, the ideal man, the, the superman, as he would call him, who was utterly self sufficient, who was strong and needed no God. And I, I remember in my college days hearing one of my professors speak of the Nietzschean hero. And I want this image to stick in your mind. This is the Nietzschean hero. He's flying a single engine open air airplane. And just before he runs his plane straight into the face of a sheer cliff, he spits in defiance at that cliff as if that somehow is going to help him. Spitting in defiance at the cliff, which is going to bring his life to a fiery end. That is the image, that is the picture of those who are experiencing the wrath of God, yet still cursing his name, spitting in his face, refusing to repent. The course they are on is hopeless, and here's the shocking thing, they know it's hopeless. They know it's hopeless, and yet they still curse God. And they hate God so much, they would rather experience hell for eternity than submit and give glory to God. But the day's going to come. Every eye will see. Every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here in these two chapters, chapter 15 and 16, we see the wicked, the defiant, the self-reliant, those who refuse to give glory to God. They refuse to acknowledge they need his mercy. And we see this unspeakable misery coupled with unimaginable defiance. But we also see the righteous. The beginning of chapter 15, they're standing by this sea of glass and fire. They're humbly affirming the glory of God. They're rejoicing in his justice and in his judgments. They're giving praise and glory to the one to whom all glory and praise are due. And they're dwelling, hear me, they're dwelling in untouchable security, safe in the arms of Jesus. They're the ones who overcome. And when the invader comes, they're not taken by surprise. They're not forced to flee for their lives with no clothes on. They're dressed, they're awake, and they're ready. Clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, keeping watch over their own souls, keeping watch for that evil day whenever it might come and whatever it might look like, and protected by the captain of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. My question is, which one are you? Where are you described in these two chapters? Are you delighting in the Lord and bowing to his authority? You might say, well, I don't hate God. Well, are you going your own way or are you going his way? Because if you insist on going your own way, you do hate his authority. You do hate his rule over you and you hate the idea that he will call you to account for that. Are you submitting to God in Christ Believing that you need to run to Jesus, a Savior who alone can free you, set you free from bondage to sin and death, 
and deliver you from the judgment we've read of here. May that be the response of every single person here. We who are in Christ, run to Christ every day. Love him, trust him. If you're not in Christ, you can be. The invitation is to come. Won't you come? Richard.